this is the uh, Theology 3 class, and uh, today we're going to continue uh, and hope maybe wrap up the section on ecclesiology. Uh, I was listening to the recording last week, I wasn't, or two weeks ago, because I wasn't able to be here at a meeting uh, during the 9.30 hour, but uh, uh, so I was able to kind of catch up on where you guys have been. So we will uh, pick kind of back up on church authority, uh, is where I think we haven't hit yet. So that's on page four of your handout. But before we get there, I want to answer a question that was asked during the class and talk with you guys about it. Um, I'm not sure who, who asked it, but uh, if the person's here and I say the question wrong, um, you correct me and jump in. But the question was kind of a, asking about should we preach to unbelievers during uh, a worship service? Should we preach the gospel to unbelievers? Um, what do you guys think about that? So, I mean, I don't think Kyle was able to spend time on it. I think he talked to the person afterwards. But what do you guys, based on what we've been studying so far, should pastors be preaching to unbelievers um, on a Sunday morning during a Sunday service? Somebody says no. Okay. Can you give me some thoughts of why you would say no? give you some simple thoughts. Okay. Um, I think that the Sunday morning service is for the equipping of the saints mm -hmm. and not for the um, reaching out to the unbeliever. Okay. So I don't know if you heard that or not, but the, the, the idea is that the corporate worship service is particularly meant to be for the believer, for the equipping of the saints, um, and not geared towards the unbeliever. You know, Steve, were you going to say something? I was just going to say, I mean, you can't present the gospel, obviously, but mm -hmm. I would agree with that. Yeah. Saw a hand up over here. Jim? I think that should be the case, but you should always give an invitation. Okay. Yeah. What do you mean by invitation? That can mean uh, some different things. To have anyone who needs to know Christ as Lord and Savior to come forward or to be consoled or yeah. by some Okay. Yeah, so you're not necessarily, you mean like kind of just like always letting people know, hey, if you have any questions, if you have any concerns, you want to know more about this, there's some people around here who would love to talk to you here at the front, pastors, please reach out, that kind of thing? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably agree in most cases on that. I, I think that, you know, we need to remember, though, that, that an unsafe person comes on a Sunday morning, that that's going to be foolishness to them, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we definitely, at some point, I don't think our message should be geared toward unsafe all the time. I totally agree. That's sort of deep dive, you know, sponsored preaching to the saints. But I think I agree with that. But I think we do need to have a, a point of any message where we clearly share the gospel, right? Yeah. We clearly make people understand what it means to accept Christ as Savior if they don't mm -hmm. know that already. But I think you just never know who's going to run through the service. Sure. So. Yeah. Any other thoughts? That's good. Here's a couple of things to think about as we kind of think through this question. Um, we've already looked at the purposes of the church in this handout and reminded that the purpose of the church, you know, we have to distinguish uh, just for a second. I'm not talking about corporate worship on Sunday morning, but just the purposes of the church. Purpose of the church is to worship God, to enjoy Him and celebrate Him. It is the purpose of the church to edify the saints. And uh, it is also the purpose of the church to evangelize, okay? Uh, so that is just a quick reminder of what we're supposed to be, what we were created and saved for. 
but then you kind of talk about the uh, distinction of, well, what about, what is the purpose of corporate worship? What are we gathering together for on a particular, on a Sunday morning? And we would see that Scripture answers this question for us, that we are, you know, as we already mentioned, that we are to uh, not neglect the assembling of together so we can stir one another up to love and good deeds. Uh, there's a lot of the different commands about what we're to do to gather together. Uh, it's all pointed towards each other. So, for example, we go to like 1 Corinthians chapter 14. This is just a really great passage. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, throughout the whole chapter, um, he's speaking to kind of the nature of corporate worship. Uh, as you guys know, contextually, uh, the uh, current church at Corinth was really struggling with uh, lots of various things, but a lot of divisiveness over a host of issues. And one of them was being, you know, who's got the better spiritual gifts? And uh, so there was division happening in the church services themselves because some people were jockeying for positions of uh, favor and thinking like, well, I've got the spirit, this spiritual gift and it's better than yours and this kind of stuff. Um, and so there was a real self-centeredness about it. But uh, just look at verse like verse 12, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12. He says, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And then in turn, uh, well, you don't, might not have to turn. In my Bible, I have to turn. Uh, uh, verse 19. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So again, you can see this continual theme of building up people with words and instructing people. Um, verse, but then, so then you go all the way down to the end of chapter 14. Verse 31, for you all, for you can all prophesy one by one so that you all may learn and all be encouraged. So again, there's the emphasis of the thing. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And then he goes on to talk about women's roles in the ministry. He goes on down further. Um, verse 40. Last verse of the chapter, but all things should be done decently and in order. So you just kind of see some of the nature here he's describing of their corporate worship when they gather together. Um, the whole theme is to build up one another, to encourage one another. Let all things, verse 26, let all things be done for building up. So that's a pretty, that's verse 26. It's a pretty um, principle guiding verse there. Let all things be done for building up. But what's also in this chapter is reference to unbelievers who are in your church service. So it says here, if you back up, verse 22, it's talking about tongues. Now, in this chapter, when you see tongues, plural, he is speaking about actual, genuine speaking in other languages. When you see the word tongue singular, he's speaking about incoherent babble that is not from God. So when he says tongues, plural, it's actually speaking in other languages. So in verse 22, he says, Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Oh, so he's assuming there's unbelievers in your midst. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? 
But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So I think there's a balance, and I think you guys are already, excuse me, hitting on it. There's a balance to be achieved where our corporate worship is primarily meant to worship. Right? Hence the title. Unbelievers can't worship God, right? So while we as a church always have a super um, philosophy and theology of loving all people, whoever comes in the door is welcome to come. We want people to come. Um, there, if you're an unbeliever, there should be a sense and a feeling of kind of being on the outside of a party looking in. And we want them to come in. That's why we talk about the gospel all the time. The gospel is the key to get into the party. But like, take for example, like baptism or communion. Like an unbeliever sees that, an unbeliever shouldn't be taking communion. That's kind of that idea. Like I'm on the outside of this party looking in. I'm curious about this. But here you see in this passage, Paul's like, man, there's going to be unbelievers that come in. And when they hear you prophesying, when they're talking about prophecy, they're not talking about telling the future. They're talking about talking about God's word, proclaiming God's word. They're convicted. They hear God's word and they come under conviction. Their sins are exposed and they hear the gospel. So he's not saying you ought to prophesy so the unbeliever can hear it. He's like, while you're doing your church service and some of you are exercising your spiritual gift of teaching and prophesying, there's unbelievers who are going to hear the word of God and come under conviction. That's a good thing. So, of course, we want that to happen. Um, We have to be careful with um, having the right missiology, theology of missions, when we think about it. Um, sometimes people will, you know, maybe you've done this before. Uh, I've, I've certainly done it before, you know, but especially when I was a young Christian. But you like, you bring someone who's not a believer to church. You're like, oh, I hope they, hope they can hear the gospel and get saved. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we want to make sure that our evangelism goes beyond just inviting people to come to church, right? Our our great commission is to go while you're going, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that. That's while we're going, not while we're necessarily gathering. And so there's this crazy thing that changed when Jesus brought in the New Covenant. In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the kind of mission theology of Israel was come and see. Everything was in Jerusalem. Everything was in Israel. You want to be a God worshiper? You want to, you're a Gentile and you be a God worshiper? You got to come here to worship God. You got to participate. You got to be a Jew externally to worship God. And then in the New Covenant, Jesus says, don't come and see, go and tell. Go and tell. People can come and see if they want, but we are to come to worship and then go and tell. And so that's got to be the biblical balance. We've got to be careful to strive for that. We're not just, uh, we're not catering to the unbeliever, but we're not neglecting and not loving them either. So we don't cater our corporate worship services to them because we're gathered to worship and they can't worship because they're not saved. But we, of course, we talk about the gospel all the time. That Pastor Josh's sermon emphasized that right out of the gate. We don't neglect to share the gospel with each other because it's not something we ever graduate from. The gospel isn't something you hear, repent, and believe, and you're like, oh, I'm good, I'm, I'm graduated from that, I'm done with it, I don't, even, I don't even think about it anymore. It's not only the thing that saves you, the gospel is what sanctifies you. Right? You, go, you read through Romans chapter 1 through 11, it's all theology about the gospel. 
And then Paul says in verse 12, well, according to the riches of God's mercy, referring back all to one, chapters 1 through 11, you got to live this way. So anytime you hear a sermon, you should hear the power of the gospel woven throughout the sermon because as we exhort the church to live in holiness for God, you can't do it apart from the gospel. If you think the gospel is something that you just believe in and give intellectual assent or agreement to, and then you just go about your life, you're going to really struggle. The gospel is the foundation for everything we do, right? In Galatians chapter 2.20, the life I now live in, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Everything I do, I live by faith in the gospel. That's the power to change. It's the power of God unto salvation. Not just initial salvation, but everything in my life. Sanctification, everything. So the gospel should be in the services all the time. That, uh, so that, that's just kind of, I think, a careful balance. Uh, just one other thing, just Second uh, Timothy chapter 4. Let me turn there real quick. Second Timothy chapter 4. Paul is reminding Timothy of what he's supposed to be doing as he pastors there in Ephesus. And I love this because it's so strong. Like what he says here in chapter 4, verse 1, he doesn't really say anything else in the letter with this strong of words. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. He's like, buckle up, right? What I'm about to tell you, I'm charging you in the presence of Jesus, who's going to judge the living and the dead. Okay, what? Verse 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So you see the nature there of like just the preaching aspect of the worship service. What's it geared toward? Reproving, rebuking, and exhorting. Like all those terms, you just do a little simple word study on those. All those terms have to do with the idea of bringing conviction of sin. Preaching is meant to awaken the conscience of all believers on a weekly basis out of our complacency and funk to see God's Word and to be um, not only convicted by it, but built up by it and encouraged and exhorted. We all need that regularly. And then this is why. Verse 3, 2 Timothy 4, 3. For, remember, every time you see the word for, um, it's explaining what it was just said. So he says, you got to preach the word. For, so another way you can say is why. Why should I do that, Paul? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So why do you preach, why do you reprove, rebuke, and exhort with God's Word? It's to help sustain and preserve people from wandering away into things that are not the gospel that will draw them away from the faith. Draw people away from sound teaching. Uh, so that's the kind of the undergird, undergirding principle of, of preaching there. Um, it's not catered towards the unbeliever, but again, the gospel is in everything we do already. Um, I think another sobering reality for elders, pastors, and, and for any Christian is the end of Jesus' sermon in Matthew, uh, Matthew 7, the end of his Sermon on the Mount. 
um, where he says, many of many on that day will stand before me and will say, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not do this and this and this in your name? And he'll say, away with you. I never knew you. And that knew you word is the Greek word for having like an intimate relationship with. It's sobering to know and to think in our churches, all churches across the world, there are people who think they are saved, but are not. And that's going to shape the way you preach. The gospel is going to better be in your preaching and woven throughout your preaching for sanctification, but also just the, the, the sobering reality that there are people who think that they're okay, so much so that they will stand before Jesus on the day of judgment, thinking that he's going to let them in and hear those terrifying words, I don't know you. Sobering, many, that word many in that passage in Matthew 7. So, uh, any questions on that? Does that kind of help kind of bring balance to the question of like, do you you preach the gospel to unbelievers in a church service? Like, yes. We don't cater the service to unbelievers, right? Some churches do that, right? They they have that mission theology of, Come and see. We just we're going to do a bunch of stuff to look like the world to draw people in, rather than just preaching the text. And, and the heart behind those things, I know people love unbelievers and they're really trying to do what they can to win people to Christ. I'm not um, uh, trying to cast aspersion on people's motives, but when you cater to the unbeliever, who suffers in the church? The sheep. The sheep. If you start kind of, you know, lowering the the standard and quality of the teaching and preaching or the songs and the prayers and all that stuff because you just don't want to offend the believer or you want to make it understandable, well, you're under you're kind of undoing your theology, right? Because if you're an unbeliever, you can't understand the things of God apart from regeneration. That's what First Corinthians chapter two says. The natural man has no understanding. So that doesn't mean when we preach, we just preach, you know, super high seminary style language and everyone's sitting there going, like, I don't understand what he's saying. Right? We, want to be, we want to make the profound truths of God's word simple for everybody so that everyone can grasp them and go, yes, this is awesome. God is so good. But we don't want to stoop down and lower it to this point where it's like we're not even teaching the Bible anymore or we're afraid to teach certain doctrines because we don't want to offend somebody or... Preach the word because the tendency of the heart is to, um, as 2 Timothy 3 says, to uh, look for things that our ears want to hear instead of listening to what God's word uh, has for us. So if you have any other further questions about that, please come and talk to me afterwards. Talk to any of the elders um, about that. Uh, But yeah, I think Josh's sermon is a good example of what we just talked about anyways. So. Any questions on that before we move on? All right. Uh, government of the church. Ooh, I don't know if anybody's triggered by that word, government. Ah. <laughs> but this is a good thing. This is, uh, you know, as 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says, all things should be done in orderly fashion because God's a God of order. And we see that theologically manifested here in his uh, way he has structured uh, the church. So I'm looking at page four, just reading straight from it. In the New Testament, there are two terms which identify an elder. Okay, so right off the bat, this is uh, document is this handout is assuming um, an elder led 
polity. Polity is the fancy word for church government. Okay, so if you don't like government word, you can use polity. Um, there are, as you many of you may know, especially if you have a different church denomination background, there are different types of church polities. I'll just talk about them real quick before I get into uh, the elder aspects of it. But uh, the, you have like Episcopal church polity, and that is the idea that uh, there's um, a hierarchy of like bishops uh, where there's somebody at the top. So you might have in your local church a bishop and then uh, a bishop who oversees a region of churches and then somebody uh, higher than that who oversees everything else and is kind of the top dog. So biggest example, this would be like the Catholic Church, right? The Roman Catholic Church. You have um, cardinals and you have priests. Right? You got priests and then above that you got the cardinals and you got and then above the very tippy top though is, is the Pope. So that'd be kind of an example of a, an Episcopal uh, polity. Uh, the Catholic Church, Anglican, some Anglican churches, Episcopal churches, Greek Orthodox. Uh, the way you would see this in Protestant circles is, and they wouldn't call it this, is but it's when this when you have a senior pastor who becomes a CEO of the church. It's just like everything is decided by the senior pastor. Um, this often happens, especially like in smaller churches, but it can happen in bigger churches where you, like the, the church is driven by the personality. Like you think about like the Mark Driscoll church, right? Uh, the, that happened there. Um, and, you know, his personality was so big that functionally he was the head bishop. Even though he had plurality of elders and stuff, if you did not agree with Mark Driscoll, he, he drove you into the ground and kicked you out of his church. He, he church-disciplined elders in his church for not agreeing with him on things. Like, super bad, super unhealthy, but it, it, this Episcopal form of government can subtly creep in even to Protestant churches. So I, I often refer to it as the CEO model. Um, the second polity would be Presbyterian. And so this would be that they believe in a plurality of elders, but then again, you have this hierarchy of, of governing bodies above the local church. Um, so you'd have like, a, I think for like, like maybe like a Lutheran church, you'd have, you know, your elders in the church. And even there with the elders, they have like a difference in between a teaching elder and a ruling elder. And above that, then you've got a group of churches that where they send a delegate from each church. And then that becomes an assembly and they oversee a couple regions of churches. Then you have your synod and then you have your general assembly. And so you have all these different hierarchies of groups and leaderships that are overseeing things. So that'd be the Presbyterian model. And then you have the congregational model. And this would be, you know, seen like a lot of Southern Baptist churches um, where the local congregation is the sole seat of authority. A lot of Bible churches, churches have like, New, like Newcastle Bible Church, right? Or these, uh, those churches tend to emphasize this idea of uh, autonomy um, in the local church, not having to answer to uh, a higher organization. So like, even though the Southern Baptists like have their Southern Baptist convention, um, they still maintain their autonomy. Another group would be like a, a evangelical free church. That's another example of that kind of a congregationalism autonomy. Uh, if you're familiar with like Pastor Mark Dever over in Washington, D.C., uh, great church, great ministry. They would have a very congregational led polity. Um, so those are just the three main categories of different church governances. Um, so then the question uh, you know, that is in our mind as we look at all this is like, well, is there a right answer? Like, what is the right answer? Does Scripture tell us 
what how the church should be governed is it supposed to be you know some you know do, are we supposed to be a part of a denomination where there's a you know some people in an office far away that help if a church starts to wander away saying hey no get back in line or is there supposed to be a pope or is there supposed to is it just the church independently of itself which is supposed to take care of itself uh, just with the congregation alone so our position here at Newcastle would be that the biblical polity, the biblical governance would be an elder-led, and that's a very specifically chosen word, not elder-ruled, but an elder-led uh, church polity. And we, even when we say that, I think when you, as we look at some of these passages and stuff, you'll see that really a biblical church polity has a combination of all those elements that I just talked about. Episcopalian, Presbyterian, and uh, Congregational. Uh, and I'll back that up here in just a second um, But uh, as we talk about things. But the, biblically, when you study the Scriptures, you see a balance um, in all those polities, that there's elements from each one that are really present, um, that you can't overemphasize one against the other. So, for example... The Puritans came up with a document called the Cambridge Platform of, in 1648, and they said this, The government of the church is a mixed government. And I love the way they spelled mixed with a T instead of E-D. That's awesome. In respect of Christ, the head and the king of the church and the sovereign power residing in him, the church is a monarchy. Like, that's Episcopalian, right? We're talking about who's somebody's at the very top who decides what the church ought to do. It's not the Pope, it's Jesus. It's not the vicar of Christ. He's not a vicar of Christ. It's Jesus. So in that sense, the church government is Episcopalian, that we as elders answer to Jesus. He is the top dog. So in that sense, it's a monarchy. Then it says this, In respect of the body, or brotherhood of the church, and power from Christ granted unto them, think about like the language of the church, like priesthood of believers, it resembles a democracy. So that's congregationalism. Then the last one, in respect of the presbytery and power committed to them, it's an aristocracy. So you kind of see all three elements. You have this Presbyterianism, Episcopalian, and democracy, the Congregationalism. It's all there in the scriptural passages that we'll look at. Uh, this quote comes from Alexander uh, Strauch's book. I'm sorry, no, Mark Dever's book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. I highly recommend that book. We might have it in the Resource Center. Um, he wrote this. He says, Every local church in Christendom, from Greek Orthodox to Pentecostal, Roman Catholic to Baptist, Episcopalian to Lutheran, Presbyterian to Methodist, is congregational in nature. They exist only as the people continue to participate in their activities. When the people vote, whether at a congregational meeting or whether that's not allowed, with their funds or their feet, the leaders of the congregation must listen. They don't have to agree, but they must listen. The congregation will have their say. That's a simple fact. It is like gravity. It is just a matter of the way things work. What do you think about that? Agree with that statement? Disagree? Thoughts? Congregationalism, a, a fact of gravity, a matter of fact. If the elders of Newcastle 
suddenly went astray and started teaching and proclaiming heresy, and you guys confronted us on it, and we said, no, this is what we think is right. We're going to keep doing it. What would you do? You'd leave. We have an obligation to. We're not going to stand for this. This is bad. This is wrong. I mean, this is like Galatians chapter 1, right? When Paul reserves his harshest words. He's like, if somebody, an angel or anybody else, preaches a gospel to you differently than what you first received, may he be anathema. May he be damned to hell. These are strong words. Those are worth separating for. If you, if you don't if see the trajectory of change being able to happen in a church, it's congregational time, right? It's like you just can't avoid that. But just because you have an elder-led polity here at the Newcastle doesn't mean that um, the congregation doesn't get to speak into things, right? The, the, the Scripture is very clear that uh, uh, the pastors and elders and teachers are meant to equip the saints for the work of ministry, be working together, leading and walking on. Where I mean, We're sheep too. Elders are sheep too. But at the same time, that doesn't dissolve other teachings in Scripture that God has ordained certain offices within the church to help the church function as God intended. So we would kind of talk about like complementarian roles in a sense, right? It's like kind of like in marriage where uh, a husband and wife are ontologically equal in essence, right? There's nothing uh, that makes the husband or wife better than one another, but yet God has given them different roles. And when those roles are lived out in accordance with God's will, the marriage is healthy and God is glorified the most. I think it's kind of the same way in the church governance. When we abide by God's, uh, the way God has laid out for things in the church, um, and we do it that, according to His will, then the church is most healthy and um, God is most glorified. Uh, this quote also comes from Mark Debbie. He says, In fact, the instructions he gives hold out a form of government we might best call elder-led congregationalism, where the assembled church as a whole holds and exercises the authority of the keys of the kingdom, but is led and taught in that use of authority by its elders. Put simply, King Jesus has given all local churches two things, the keys of the kingdom and elders to teach, to lead and teach how to use them. So when we talk about church discipline a little bit, we're going to see that congregationalism on display. The keys of the kingdom, particularly relating to church discipline, aren't given to the elders. It's given to the church. Right? When you get to the final stage of church restoration, church discipline, you tell it to the church, not the elders. And then as a church, you bind and loose, and whatever is bound and loosed here on earth is just a confirmation of whatever has been bound and loosed already by God in heaven. So, I just want to say that there's some balance here as we look at then the actual position of the elders. There's a good mixed government, as we see in the scriptures, a balance there. And, and sometimes, you know, the reason why there's difference emphasis from congregation to congregation, denomination to denomination, is I think just people grabbing onto certain scripture passages and just overemphasizing them at the detriment of others. And so, I mean, we can say that with a lot of different theological differences in churches. Like, um, you know, it's just, it's, it takes a lot of work to balance everything that the Bible has to say about everything. It's hard work. And we can only do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And, but that's the life of a believer is continually walking the balanced tightrope of what Scripture says about almost any given topic. And when you find yourself starting to get out of balance, it's like being corrected by God's Word. It's like, you know, if you're walking across a tightrope, you know, that long balance beam bar that they hold sometimes, it's like, that's God's Word. That's the Holy Spirit helping you stay balanced and biblical on things. And there's some tension, right? I mean, you think about even walking like on a slack line or a little bit wider. It's like still hard work and it's like takes a lot of muscle exertion to like not lose your balance it takes a lot of mental spiritual exertion to uh maintain god's balance uh biblical balance on certain things so i'd say that with church government as well any questions before we jump into the office of elders so is, would you say the congregationalism aspect is the difference between an elder led and an elder yeah yeah elder rule right 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 Elder rule just kind of contends to get into the domineering category. Yep. All right, elders. Okay, back to page four. So I read one sentence of it and I jumped off the deep end. <laughs> In the New Testament, there are two terms which identify an elder. The first term is presbyteros where we get the term Presbyterian, literally meaning an older man, for example, like 1 Timothy 5.1. Uh, it is used in a figurative sense for leaders. The term elder stresses the dignity and the maturity of this lofty office. It is these elders that have the authority to distribute money, make decisions regarding what constitutes orthodox doctrine, and they are to be respected and visit the sick. So there's also another term in the Bible that, you know, because so like, some people call them bishops, right? What's that? Well, there's a biblical term also, used for bishop. It's the episkopos word. The other term is used as overseer. That's what it's often translated in the English as overseer, or episkopos is the Greek word, where we get the term episcopal. This term means to watch over and stresses the function and duty of an elder. So they're really important words, but they just stress different things. So one stresses kind of, like it says, the dignity. That's the elder term. Presbyteros just kind of stresses the dignity and maturity of the office. Episcopos, if you ever see the word overseer, it's talking about the actual practical functions of the office. They are to nurture and protect the flock of God entrusted to their care. And a comparison of Acts chapter 20, 17, and 18, Titus 1, 5, 7 reveals that these two terms are used interchangeably. Now, the qualifications of elders are set forth in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. Elders are to be typified by the following 15 characteristics. And as we review these characteristics, think through why each one is essential. And actually, that list is... Um, is good list, but let me just turn there to 1 Timothy 3 real quick. There's kind of two parts to the qualifications of elders. There's like a subjective list of qualifications, and subjective meaning it's kind of more based upon the person's um, personal uh, interpretation of their life and desires. And then the list that's in your handout is like objective. Like you can, anybody can look at this person's life and say, okay, is this a one, one woman man? No, they're not. Okay, they're not qualified to be an elder, right? So that's, that's kind of what, the, the, but First Timothy 3 says this, um, if anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, so that's a qualification for eldering. Like if somebody comes up to us at Newcastle, the elders and says, hey, I, I think I'm called to be an elder. And I would say, do you, is that something you desire? Like, do you, desire, do you know what being an elder means, and do you want to do that? 
And if they don't have appropriate understanding of what an elder is, you know, obviously we'll talk with them, teach them, counsel them, and then see if they still have that desire. But that's part of the calling of an elder. Like, do you want to do it? Do you understand what it is? And do you have a God Has God given you a desire? That's kind of subjective, right? I, I can't tell if you have a desire or not. I mean, obviously there's some ways you can, like if people like to counsel and talk about God's word, study it and talk to people and teach people, you can kind of see that desire. You can see evidence of it, but uh, that's something you, not need to ask, you need to ask. It's a subjective element. Okay, then you get into the objective uh, things there in verse 2, and that's what's listed in your handout. So, um, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but a lover of uh, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So there you have a list. Uh, we, we, we don't have time to necessarily go through and uh, like teach on every single uh, characteristic uh, trait of an, an elder qualification. But I think it's important to note that the Bible does say that elders are supposed to be able to teach. That's kind of the distinguishing characteristic that differentiates them from uh, a deacon. It's not that deacons can't teach, but that elders must be able to teach. Um, but all, apart from that, all of these characteristics deal with character. And that should tell you something about what God views as important in leadership in a church. Character of a man far outweighs the competency of a man. That doesn't mean competency is not important, right? I want, I want someone in the pulpit who knows how to handle God's word accurately because that's what's commanded of them so that my soul, of my own soul, and my family's soul can be fed. But I care about the character as well. Because if a man is in the pulpit who has no character, then his teaching will be uh, inept, defunct, powerless, and hypocritical, just uh, dishonoring to Christ, disgusting. And so the character is so essential, so essential. Any questions about... I mean, I kind of answered the question. I was in a handout on page five. Why is it so important? When we kind of talk about leadership, there's um, kind of three elements. There's what we call, I think, uh, ethos and the logos and the pathos of a man. So the, uh, the, the logos of a man is his content, the things that he says. Like, that's something you should be looking for and measuring in a man. How does this man speak? What's, what is he saying? Is it substantive? Is it biblical? Then the pathos, like, does this man really desire? Is he passionate about it? Does he believe it? Is it a conviction in his life? But then there's the ethos, the ethics of a man. Because if you don't have all three of those, then you're really going to have a struggling leadership. Um, and, it, you know, it's kind of like that three-legged stool analogy. Like, those are three things that are really critical. And if you lack one, then you really have an ineffective leader uh, for God's church. So, any questions about elders, qualifications, or roles? You go to First Peter real quick. Chapter 5, I'm sorry, 2 Peter. Wow, no. 
First Peter five. I was right the first time. First Peter five. Just to kind of see again, just the element of what the elders are supposed to do. Verse one, First Peter five one. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So you guys, as a congregation, you have the clear rubric and understand what you should expect from your shepherds. You guys should hold the, the leadership accountable to this. That's part of the congregational aspect. If you see an elder acting in an unbecoming way, you should go through the proper church discipline restoration thing that you would with anybody else. But if, you know, so, so Matthew 18, we're going to talk about that more in a minute. But if you see someone acting in a way, you have, you, you, we are not unapproachable. We shouldn't be. If we are, that's a problem. That's probably it might be a disqualification if you can't ever be approached. And you know, we're again we're just sheep and believers, just like the rest of you. We have our own sin struggles as well. Not about we we are to live above reproach, but we shouldn't be unapproachable. And so here, though, you have what you need to know about what your leaders should be doing, so that you can help hold them accountable. So when you see a new elder maybe being put into the EID process or, you know, you have, you be watched, you know what to watch for. You say, okay, this guy's being tested. They're kicking the tires on him to see if he's truly qualified for being an elder and leader of our church. What do I I need to look for? Well, you have those qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. And then you see, is is he doing these things? Is he shepherding the flock? Does he like to be around the sheep? Is he at church events? Does he talk to people? Or is he reclusive? Is he, you know, is a pastor just holding his office all the time and never coming out to visit the sick or being around other people? Do they shepherd the flock that is among you? Do they exercise oversight? Do they seek to help the sheep grow, equipping the saints for the work of ministry? Do they exude the passion that Paul had of like, you know, like a mother nursing an infant? We longed and cared for you. Um, do you know? Did, did Paul just uh, or Paul says, you know, Colossians chapter one twenty eight. We we work, we toil and work with all the power and energy that God works within us to present you mature in Christ. And do they do it willingly, right? I mean, that, nobody wants to, you know, be led by someone who does it begrudgingly. Fine, if I have to. Ugh, I don't like being, a, I hate being at this stuff. I don't like counseling. I don't like helping people. Like, it's just like, this is crazy. As God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. You know, as you see this a sacrificial life, not someone who's trying to do it. Not domineering, not abusive, not manipulative, but being an example, living as an example, like as Paul, Paul would say, right? Follow, you know, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So, as you see there, I just encourage you guys to be equipped with that and understand and know what you should expect from your pastors. It's a high calling. You're like, well, I don't want to be hard on elders. That You should be. We are going to be judged with greater strictness and judgment and held accountable for your souls. That is a very sobering thing. 
And we don't take it lightly, that's, but that's what it says in the text. It tells us that we will be held accountable for your souls, that we will be judged for greater, with greater strictness based on how we teach us, James chapter 3. That's no small thing. And we need help. We are, we are the very, very best of men are men at best, right? So we, we need the body of Christ, just like the body of Christ needs elders. So we are not some hierarchy of super privileged people that cannot be approached and talked to or even confronted on matters. Of course, now the Bible, again, tells us how we to confront. We'll talk about that in a second. We might not have time to talk about church discipline. We're probably going to have to wait till next Sunday. Um, I don't want to, like, skimp out on that in case there's questions, because people, we all have different experiences with church discipline. We've come through back, different church backgrounds and stuff like that, so I want to make sure we give proper time. But let's talk about deacons. This is page 5 on your handout. The word deacon... Uh, diakonos in the Greek is the common word that means minister or servant and is used many times in the New Testament in a non-technical sense. Um, whereas it is not clearly stated, it appears that the origin of the office began in Acts chapter 6, where seven men were selected to care for the material needs of widows in the congregation. That allowed the apostles to devote their time to prayer and ministry of the word. This indicates the function of deacons is to be subordinate and auxiliary to the elders, while the elders teach the congregation the deacons care for the material needs of the congregation. And so, again, you go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, even Titus 1, you will also see um, qualifications for uh, deacons. So let's look at those real quick. Uh, let's just go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're already there. Go back. First Timothy 3, starting verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus." So there you see a lot of similar characteristics, but what's the key difference? What would you guys say is the key difference between deacons and elders? It doesn't list the hospitality. Or the yeah. Yeah, the teaching is a big one. But it's true, it doesn't list the hospitality either. Based on what you know, why they why did they appoint uh what we call them proto deacons, you know, in Acts chapter six, those seven men, um, what what for what reason did they appoint those people? Yeah, good. The elders couldn't focus on what they needed to do with teaching mm-hmm. because they were too busy. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, essentially, the deacons are meant to help lead the church, um, but also to help ensure and protect that the elders are freed up 
to the ministry, to be dedicated and committed to the, the ministry of the word and prayer. And so, the, you know, that's just such an essential role. I'm really thankful that uh, in our elders meetings, the way that we have based on the way we've kind of structured things where you know we have different teams in the church that are a mixture of elders and deacons who oversee the various things that the church does that really frees up the elders meetings to be what we call them shepherding meetings we're not focused on the weeds and minutia of church business and taking care of buildings and all this stuff we're talking about you guys we're praying for you guys. We're working on being shepherds and praying together and growing in our knowledge of the Word and spending time in the Word. Like that's what that's what the deacons are so, so, such a gift to the church. And so, when we want to be careful, and I think we do a good job of this at Newcastle, is that deacons aren't treated and looked at as just um, uh, righteous janitors <laughs> or righteous project managers. That's not what they are. They, they can teach if they want to. They, they, if they have that gift and stuff, but they can lead. They're supposed to lead. And, and I think Philippians chapter 1, I think it is, where you see the office of deacons and elders really held up together. All right, in verse 1 of Philippians chapter 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. And so you see them both mentioned there in the title and just kind of a, uh, uh, just a demonstrating both of their leadership roles in the church. And so uh, we really highlight and value and support all of our deacons in um, that way that they are not just to be uh, viewed as a project manager or somebody, a grunt who gets work done, but somebody who helps lead the church um, exhort the church, uh, counsel the church members, equip the church members, and lead, in, in not only in their godly character, but in the way they live, you know, in godly life, but leading in the, in the work as well. Um, so deacons and elders are both just a tremendous gift from God to the church as part of the way God has organized the church to function for its good and for His glory. Any questions about deacons? If you're interested in knowing more about the position of Newcastle, because as you, many of you know, uh, we do have female deacons as well. Um, that's not mentioned here in this handout, but we have great handouts available on our website, or I can give it to you printed off. I think I have one printed handoff of kind of all the in-depth explanation about why we have female deacons, because not every church does that. Um, there's really good godly churches that don't have female deacons and good godly ones that so it's a, it's a one of those things that just kind of a difference of uh, interpretation that we come to. Um, but if you're interested in knowing more about that, this, we don't have the time and space in this uh, quarterly class to really get into the details of all those kinds of things, just like we don't have time to talk about all the individual char characteristics of the elders and stuff like that. So, But if you, please come and talk to me afterwards if you have any questions. So then page five and six of your handout, five through seven, kind of talks more, a little bit more about the uh, different church polity, congregationalism, Presbyterianism, and stuff like that. So we've already kind of talked about that. I thought it was better to talk about that before you talk about them, the elders right, and stuff like that. So that's why I kind of threw it first. Um, any questions about anything that we've talked about today or anything in the past? We will save church discipline for next week and then 
probably get into eschatology after that. Uh, so, uh, but any questions about anything? something you can think about if you want um, but uh, there's a lot of things we just didn't have time to get into but if you have questions about it and you want to ask next week that's totally fine so like if you have a question about eldering deacons women's roles in church uh, maybe just like you know the gamut of things that involve church governments and governance and how God has ordered things um, please don't hesitate. Uh, you can send it to me in advance if you just want to talk to me about it in private. Uh, you don't have to send it to me in advance, but uh, that can just be sometimes helpful. If you have a question that you want to kind of be asked in front of the whole class, um, then we can come with a, you know, hopefully a much more succinct and clear answer right off the bat. Um, but uh, let me just end with this question. So we talked about a lot of differences in, in church polity, uh, church leadership style and things like that. What would you say to somebody who says, well, okay, I know Tyson, you guys do an elder-led polity, but guess what? I've seen all of the different models of church governance succeed, and I've seen them all fail. So what's the big deal if, you know, I do it differently than you? I don't think, you know, what if, what if somebody kind of takes more of a neutral position on that? How would you kind of respond to that? Is there any truth in the statement of that person, hypothetical person? I've seen all the church models succeed and I've seen them all fail. Sure. Yeah, I've seen elder-led polity fail. I've seen ungodly men be in a position of elder and not lead well and hurt the church for it. And sure, I've seen a, you know, a lot of churches you go to where you maybe have a small church congregation and they have just a single pastor and uh, maybe not even any other additional elders. And so he's leading the church by himself, but... He's doing a good job, godly job. He's a godly man. Um, so you see those kinds of things. Uh, we have brothers and sisters in Christ and Lutheran churches where they have synods and all those kinds of other stuff. But, you know, people are being saved and growing in godliness. So then the question is, why make a big deal of teaching polity? Why, why, why put your flag in the, in the ground and say, elder-led is the biblical way? I think the, the deviates to where Christ isn't the head of the church. That might be the risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It deviates from Christ being the head of the church. Yeah, any other thoughts? I think um, congregational also puts the responsibility on us. Mm -hmm. um, I appreciated how you said multiple times that pastors are still chief. Mm -hmm. Because we have to remember that 
we're sinful men. We're still led by sinful men. Mm -hmm. um, and priests, pastors, all these, you know, they all struggle with the same things mm -hmm. that the rest of us do. So it puts the responsibility on the congregation to not only hold you up as pastors to the standards that the Bible lays out, but to remember that you have struggles and you're human beings and we should also be praying and caring mm -hmm. for the pastors as well, just as we see Paul appreciating when he's in prison that he is still being cared for, even though he is the teacher. Mm -hmm. he, his soul is still cared for by the congregation. Mm -hmm. um, so I like that model better because it doesn't make, I like the congregational model better because it doesn't make the, the leaders untouchable mm -hmm. and inhuman. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely don't want this idea where it's like, you know, the kind of papacy sneaks in where it's like, well, the Pope has said it, so that's the way it's going to be. He has spoken ex cathedra, you know, it's like, that's not what it is. It's supposed to be in a Protestant church. The elders have spoken, and that's the way it's got to be. Right? I think ultimately the, the issue is the submission to God's word, right? That's at the heart of this. What does God's word say, and are we going to do it? Not what's pragmatic. What works? Let's do that. Because God's ways are higher than our ways. So somebody might say, you know, we talked, I mentioned earlier, complementarian roles in marriage, right? So are there egalitarian marriages out there that are healthy? Yeah, sure. There's a There's a lot of them out there where you have a husband and wife who love each other very much and are going to be committed to glorifying God together to the very end. But is it it's God's ultimate design? No, it's not. And so the same thing with the church. It's like, yeah, there's churches out there who are doing well in general, who have a different polity, and I'm thankful for the Lord because He's gracious to us despite our weaknesses and our shortcomings. But we always want to seek to have that posture of what does God's Word say, and are we going to submit to that, knowing that that's what is best. That's what's best. And, and we want to make sure we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yes, the right church polity can be abused and done wrongly, but that doesn't mean that it itself is wrong. So, yeah, just uh, wanted to think about that. Yep. I think, too, that it's, um, the right way makes it easier to um, glorify God, where the wrong way, it's easier to fall away. Mm -hmm. If you have somebody that is the top dog, then it's easier to worship him because we put him in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. He seems to be so high and knowledgeable. So if you have it set up the right way, then it helps the sheep to not fall away. Yeah. Yep. When done rightly in accord with God's will, absolutely. Yep. So... All right, well, that's uh, it for today. We'll let you guys go. And so next week we'll finish up on uh, ecclesiology, talking about church discipline, and, and then we will uh, start into eschatology. It'll be fun. <laughs> Thanks, everybody.